last week we, uh, we began our service with a clip from Thor. Uh, today we're going to do it from Doctor Strange. And you may go, wow, life is one big Marvel film. And, you know, maybe we are just that superficial. Um, but Stephen Strange is a doctor. He's brilliant. He's brave. He's courageous. He's innovative. Um, um, but so full of himself uh, that it's palpable. And uh, he's in a car wreck. Um, a debilitating car wreck. He, he loses a, his ability to be a surgeon. He, he hears a rumor about um, someone who heals something so debilitating like that uh, in Kathmandu. I had to look that up. Where is that? Oh, yeah, Nepal, right. And so he goes there, and he, he seeks that physical healing that he is so desirous of, and he, and he meets one called the Ancient One, who you will discover has a great deal of wisdom, especially about her ability to conserve money on hair product. But But in the middle of that, in his quest to be healed physically, we we discover that there is another kind of healing that he is actually more needful of that the Ancient One is going to help him grapple with. And you catch it in this very brief moment. You have such a capacity for goodness. You always excelled, but not because you craved success, but because of your fear of failure. That's what made me a great doctor. It's precisely what kept you from greatness. Arrogance and fear still keep you from learning the simplest and most significant lesson of all. Which is? It's not about you. How often do I need the ancient one to look at me like that and say, it's not about you? Um, I'm asking rhetorically, don't raise your hand. How How many of you have thought about yourself so often this morning, even before you got here. <laughs> I know, I know. If only I could count, right? And <clears throat> how many of you perhaps have needed somebody like the ancient one to look you in the eyes and say, longingly, compassionately, but firmly, hey, it's not about you. Yeah. He wants glory. He wants greatness. And she doesn't dispel that desire. But she's just saying the way in which you are going about it is so fundamentally and fatally flawed. It is actually you are your own worst enemy because you think it's all about you. We have been listening for the last several weeks to the account of the prophet Elijah's life. And we're going to listen to another very brief excerpt in that uh, exchange, and we're going to back up a little bit into last week's passage just to get a running start. And I think what's going to happen here is that we're going to get a little mini course, a short course in discipleship about what it means to follow God. And, and the title of that course is this, It's Not About You. And I think we're going to consider that under two headings. Two, not three. I want my tithe back. Two headings, two marks of what it means to know in God that it's not about you. And it has to do with, we'll call it a look ahead. And secondly, we'll call it what it means a look around. We're in 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 15. I wonder if you might stand and give your attention to what he has said. First Kings, chapter 19, we'll start in verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Elijah, 
Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abdel-Mechulah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my mother and my father, and and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him, and took the yoke of oxen, and sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and gave it to the people. And they ate. And then he arose, and went after Elijah, and assisted him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may, you may be seated. All right. For those of you that are just joining us, what? What? <laughs> yeah. So this all happens in the wake of both a very um, poignant moment and a sobering promise that comes to Elijah. If you were with us last week, and I know that many of you weren't, um, last week, Elijah has experienced what can only be termed as a deep spiritual depression. He is undone. Everything has come in his mind to nothing. And he wonders, why am I still here? And I might ask you, have you ever, have you ever meet, met a moment in which everything um, you have tried um, in your mind has brought you no closer to a goal? Have you ever been in a situation where everything seems to be falling apart around you and and there's this whisper in your head, whether from your own heart or from that of an accuser that wants to reduce your life down to everything that you consider to be a failure? Yeah, probably. A lot of you could nod your heads. Elijah could. He reaches a point in which he just says to the Lord, how about you just kill me? That's where he is in the moment. That's what he's feeling. That's what he's working to way out of. And the Lord knows it. And if you were with us last week, the Lord kind of shows him a path out of that hole. But as he's doing so, the Lord pretty much agrees with Elijah's assessment. You know what, Elijah? You're right. You have tried everything. You have, you have tried to persuade the king of Israel to repent and to let the word of God follow Lead him, and he has not listened. So I get it. You're right. And I'm going to intervene. And and here's the, you know, one of the many weird parts of the moment. He goes, you're going to go anoint two kings, which kind of drop out of the narrative until you get later into 2 Kings. So I'm sorry. If you want to figure out what happened there, you'll have to read ahead. But he does say this. You're going to anoint two kings. They're going to lead. But I also want you to anoint a successor. His name is Elisha. He's a man of the field. He knows how to plow. So there's what happens. 
That's what happens. Elijah goes in order to continue what he started. He finds Elisha. What's Elisha doing? He's got 12 head of oxen. Clearly, uh, agribusiness is going well. The capital investment is high. He's part of a family. Great. He's working the field. And Elijah comes up to him, and all he does is put his cloak on Elisha's back and walks on. And that's a symbol. My cloak on you. Follow me. Brilliant. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't say, you know, can we talk? Um, can I see your CV? Um, you know, what do you think about doing what I'm doing? He just, he puts his cloak on him and then just walks on. What a wonderful moment for Elijah to go, what is this guy all about? He knows Elijah. I mean, it is a dramatic scene, right? I mean, it's the stuff films are made of. If, if Elrond comes to Aragorn in, in The Return of the King, and what does he do? He hands him the refashioned sword of Isildur known as Anduril. And what does Elrond say? Now it is time for you to become the king that you were meant to be. Ray, she, she hears a voice. She walks downstairs at Maz Kanata's bar. And what, she opens up the trunk and there's Luke Skywalker's lightsaber. She picks it up and she has this experience. And Maz Kanata walks in there with their big eyes. And she says, you know what that is, right? The force is calling you. It's laying claim to you. And you needed the, the voice of a, of a seasoned person. It's been around that person seasoned whatever Maz is around the block to know this is what it is dr strange when he starts to get a sense of who he is supposed to be what shows up a cape i think he's supposed to remind us of a dog because the the cape drapes on him and 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 protects him and serves him and directs him and all at the same time it's saying i'm laying claim upon you there is something that has to be done, that you need to walk in, and you will walk this way. And so there's the cape. That's what we're going on here. That's what Elijah is up to do. Elijah is calling Elisha. Why? What is he up to? What's that all about? Elijah is in that moment displaying to us an understanding that he has. That whatever he's up to for the Lord Elijah knows it's not about him. This thing, it's bigger than him. And consequently, what it's about to be has to be beyond him. It is meant to be pursued. It is meant to prevail even beyond him. He is there to say, I believe this work must go on. What he is out to tell us Because at this point, it's like, wow, that's very interesting, and it's like a rite of passage, and isn't it neat for a mentor to call an apprentice? We all kind of know those stories. Who cares? I'll tell you why you should care. Because I think the first line, the first lesson of discipleship in this passage, the first indicator that you and I realize that what it means to follow God is that it's not about you, is that you realize that you always have to have a look ahead. Beyond your prime, beyond even your presence within this community. The way you know it's not about you is when you begin to offer up that which you have been given well beyond you, that it extends beyond you. 
when Jesus calls 12 disciples, it was not because he was lonely. It's because he knew he had to give something to them that they would then give to others. When Jesus shows up at Mary and Martha's house, and Martha's busying herself, you know, getting the cloth napkins out and making sure that there's, you know, nice corners and that the tablecloth looks great. And Mary instead just sits at Jesus' feet and Martha starts to get resentful, like, hello, I could use a little help. Mary's sitting there and Jesus in some ways says, enough. What she's come for will never be taken from her. It's the one thing she needs. It's the one thing we all need. But what Mary receives from Jesus in that moment to learn from him is to be received. It's for her, but it's not like a possession. It's, it's not like a, a painting on a wall or a trophy that just sort of sits there and gathers dust. Whatever she was out to receive, it was an understood thing that she would then give it away. She knows. The disciples knew. Elijah knows. Elisha is presented with the possibility. What you've been given is not for you alone. There always has to be a look ahead in which that which you've been given is for the sake of what might exist before and after you are even here. Now, I will be honest with you. In some ways, the church in our day is guilty of being counterproductive. That's not the first time, won't be the last inexpensive coffee in the gallery, nice plush chairs, air conditioning, toilet paper, screens. There's a screen in here with excellent sound. Tell me all the ways in which this looks more like AMC Regal than some other cathedral that you might have been in. And what can that unintentionally but actually engender in you. That it's all about you. So I'm sorry. On behalf of everybody, I'm sorry. If we give you that impression that it's all about you. But even as I say that, look, you, you, you hear about what Elijah is up to, that he believes it, it has to go beyond him. And, and you hear the part about, you know, Jesus calling his 12 disciples and then Jesus... Um, having Mary sit at his feet and learn from him. And you hear all that and you go, wow, that sounds so sacred, so otherworldly, that, like, I'm no Elijah, uh, I'm no Jesus, I'm no Mary, I'm no disciple, at which point I would, I would look you in the eye and go, who told you that? Who gave you the impression that, that the only way in which you might fulfill this is that you have to be public or prominent? or that you have speaking skills, or, or whatever it might be, or that you're, a, you're an extrovert. Who told you that? No one. The mark of you getting it is realizing that what you have is not for you alone. And then there's a sense in which that which you've been given is meant to be cultivated so that it continues. Um, this is not a foreign concept to a lot of people. Teachers get this. Moms and dads get this, and moms and dads fail at this. Um, chief residents in hospitals get this. They, they bring their residents in, this is how you do it. That is not how you do it, right? It's all about mentor, apprentice, you're the future. Um, when I was in Boy Scouts, 
or Cub Scouts, uh, you know, there's this thing called the outdoor code, right? And one of the planks of the outdoor code was um, um, leave the place better than you found it. And uh, one time I had an aunt come down from Oklahoma and stay with us, and we had the outdoor code on a wall in the kitchen, and, and Aunt Ruth Ann said, um, outdoor code, yeah, why don't you follow that indoor code in your room in the same way? <laughs> Thanks, auntie. I ask you rhetorically, does your presence in this community, does your participation in this community, does it have an eye on what's ahead when you are long gone? Because one mark of discipleship is to have that kind of mindfulness in mind. It goes that way. It's meant to function in that way. Now, fact are there seasons in which I got nothing to give? I am hemorrhaging. I am hobbled. I am constrained by forces and circumstances and, and, and diagnoses that in some ways really mitigate my capacity to give. That's a true statement. And, and far be it for me to heap some sort of shame upon you if, if you are so debilitated that you cannot. But I would say, to many of us, even in our pain sometimes. In fact, we, we make ourselves vulnerable with our pain, and that is its own gift. That story is a gift. Some of you right now are teaching us how to suffer. Nobody wants to sign up for that class. Nobody enrolls willful, willingly. But there is something in that. And in many ways, it can be for us, for a wider set. The first mark of discipleship, the first way you know it's not about you, is if you have that look ahead, what's the second, the other lesson that we get here? Um, we've heard from Elijah, and then up comes Elisha. What's he going to do? How's he going to respond? He, the cloak is draped upon him without words. Uh, he drops the plow because Elijah is already kind of walked on ahead. Like, wait, 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 wait. I'm going to... Catch up, right? He catches up with him. I'm wearing the cloak. There you are. And then he asks um, Elijah, hey, um, makes a request. Let me, go, let me go kiss mom and dad, and then I'll follow you. And in the most um, debated, unclear, uncertain response in, in the entirety of the passage, um, Elijah says there in verse 20, go back again, for what have I done to you? I'm sorry, what? Like, the connection is bad. I think you said people are debating. Is, is Elijah sort of conceding? Is he, is he up in Elisha's business? I don't know. And, and so that's, that's the question. What's happening here in this brief two-sentence exchange between Elijah and Elisha? One, one possibility is, is Elisha hesitating? Is he looking to kind of, hey, can we... Um, Push this off. Like, how long is the offer good? Is there an expiration? Is there a deadline on this one? Can I? Because I need to go kiss mom and dad. And if you, if you know parts of Jesus' story, you, this may sound familiar, right? Jesus is talking to disciples, whether present or future, and one of them comes up to Jesus and says, hey, um, I, can I go bury my dead father first? And Jesus looks in the eye and says, let the dead bury their own dead. 
well, put that in the Hallmark card. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Let the dead bury their own dead. Because then it gets worse in the Luke version of that. Anybody that sets his hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit to be my disciple. Is Jesus dunking on loving your parents and the dead ones? Is he saying they don't matter? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He gets up in the business of the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7 when they have taken the law and distorted the whole commandment to honor your father and mother. And Jesus is scandalized by the way they have twisted that command. Later in the summer, we're going to consider the Ten Commandments. So get ready. Woo. So he's not dunking on parents. What's the deal here? Is Elisha hesitating? Okay, that's one possibility. What's another? Could it be that Elisha is simply reckoning, realizing what this call of God requires? And that the request to go kiss mom and dad is him coming to terms with that call and out of honoring mom and dad... He doesn't just sort of leave town and they get to wonder, where'd he go? I'm going to go say goodbye. Because I believe that your call is upon me. Here's what's at work. He is demonstrating in that first moment a first incremental step in following the call. I am going to tell my goodbyes to the ones I love. And then that second incremental step, what does he do? It's like, um, he butchers the oxen. Very expensive meat this day, these days. And he boils them up and he, and he feeds the people with the oxen. His, his whole manner of livelihood, everything that he is familiar with, the whole rut, literally, he's been in with a plow for however many years. I'm setting that aside. This call is calling me to a full, perfect, and different new attention than what I've ever given. So it sounds like Elisha is not trying to come up with excuses on how we can push this off until later. It sounds like he's saying, I'm in, and I realize what this is going to cost. Jesus says, unless you hate your mother and your father, you, you cannot be my disciple. And all the kids are going, Really? Um, it's not that what it's not what it, Jesus doesn't mean hate they're like I wish I was never born not that it's that in matters of degree when it comes to our faithfulness unto the Lord every other relationship it, it's almost as if it's like a form of hatred and, and here's where we get to the second lesson of discipleship via Elijah and Elisha how do you know when you no longer believe it's about you. Not only in the way you look ahead, but also the way in you look around at everyone and everything else you have a relationship with. And in everything that you have a relationship with, whatever you do, whoever you know, whomever you love, there is a question that has to come up in your mind for the entirety of your pilgrimage on this earth. In any given moment, it is always appropriate for you to ask this question. In the here, in the now, in the circumstance, in the relationship, is God God? 
Or have I found something or someone else as a substitute for him? Is God God? For Elisha to say, hey, I'm going to go kiss mom and dad. And for Elisha then to go, you know, cook up the oxen, feed everybody, and burn the yokes because nobody else is going to use them. That's him saying, I think God is God. And I will walk in his way. Let me put that in very practical terms. If you ever get married or are married, uh, I had an elder give me the most wonderful word for what it means um, to um, bind yourself to another in love through marriage. He says that when you do that, every other relationship gets recalibrated. Every other relationship that you have has to change in some way. And if you think it doesn't, good luck. And not just because there's a certain wisdom to that. Let's go back to Genesis 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Something's different now. It doesn't mean that you make your spouse into a god. It means that you're believing that God is God and that he has some sort of wisdom involved in that. Is God God is a question you ask in that domain. Not, it's not everybody's domain, but it's a domain. What if you have children? What if you end up with children? Whoops. There they are. What about it? Same problem. Same challenge. Now, if you, here, we'll split it out in two, two ways. You, you, can, you can mess this up too. I should know. Everybody knows. Like, if you treat children like they are adults, um, they will either die or turn into demons. Because you will ask of them what they are incapable of doing. You, you, will, you, will, you will set them out into uh, a way of existence that is treacherous and dangerous for which they have no experience. And if you treat them like adults, it's, it's, it is negligence. Um, in homage um, to uh, the character that most reminds me of my father-in-law, uh, Andy Griffith. We, we spare no expense around here to bring into you the vast wisdom from all corners of the world. But in this brief scene from Andy Griffith, he is meeting up with a wanderer played by Buddy Epson. Da, 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 uh, uh, right? And Buddy Epson's playing a wanderer. He's just kind of come through Mayberry. And, and Buddy Epson's character is sort of beginning to influence Opie. And Opie's starting to go, dude, not bad. I think I'd like to live that life. And so here's this brief exchange between Buddy Epson, the wanderer, and Andy Griffith, the sheriff of Mayberry. Here we go. I live the kind of life that other people would just love to live if they only had the courage. Who's to say that the boy would be happier your way or mine? Why not let him decide? No, I'm afraid it don't work that way. You can't let a young'un decide for himself. He'll grab at the first flashy thing with shiny ribbons on it. Then when he finds out there's a hook in it, it's too late. Wrong ideas come packaged with so much glitter, it's hard to convince them that other things might be better in the long run. And all a parent can do is say, wait, trust me, and try to keep temptation away. If you treat children like adults, you're inviting that. 
If, the, if, if children have been entrusted to you, moms and dads, then this is what you're called to. And let's flip it around. You know, we, we're always tempted to treat our children like adults. But what happens if you start treating your adult children like they're still children? If you, if you treat a 40-year-old as if they're four, um, you have consigned yourself and them uh, to a little hell on earth. Because then... Um, Let's be honest, what you're probably doing right now is that you've turned them into a god. Uh, this weekend, over at the Wortham, they're going to do the great divorce. And if you can check it out, you should. They did the online version. Now you can see it live. Um, but one of the scenes from that famous work that I know I keep quoting all the time is this moment in which the, the families that have taken the bus ride from hell to the outskirts of heaven, there's a mom and uh, again, when you come from hell to heaven, you're like a ghostly figure. You're sort of vaporous and everything, but he can see through you. And, and um, here's this mom who lost her son at a young age. And she has heard that he's in heaven and she wants to see him. And everybody in the spirit in heaven saying, I'm sorry, you, you, can't, you can't see him right now. You're not ready. And the mom is flabbergasted. The mom is, is scandalized. She's, she's so desperately angry that she... She yells at the spirit, at the vestibule of heaven. She says, um, give me my boy, do you hear? I don't care about all your rules and regulations. I don't believe in a God who keeps mother and son apart. I believe in a God of love. No one has a right to come between me and my son, not even God. Tell him that to his face. I want my boy. I mean to have him. He's mine. Do you understand? Mine, mine, mine forever and ever. Sounds like love. But what does the Spirit have to say to her? Don't you see? You are not beginning at all as long as you are in this state of mind. You're treating God only as a means to Michael. The whole thickening treatment consists in learning to want God for his own sake. St. Augustine was an imperfect man with imperfect views, like me, like you. But on this count, I'm not sure that you can improve upon the thought. He says, he loves thee, that is the Lord. The whole work of the confessions is one um, long, long prayer to God. He loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. Thee, thy, though. What's he mean? Unless you love the Lord foremost, anything else you love has the capacity and you are tempted to make them as some sort of substitute for him. Like that mother. Like you are tempted in a marriage to make your parents your God or your spouse your God. Unless the Lord is first, you are actually asking too much of anything else you love beyond what it can provide. You are placing too much weight upon it upon which you cannot depend. You are turning it into an anchor that cannot anchor you in the middle of the greatest storm. He loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. Look, that can happen in a marriage. That can happen if you have children. That can happen if you have a job. Oh, how I would love 
to sit down with any of you and tell me about your work. But also tell me, what are the unique challenges associated with your work in which in any given moment, depending on what the work requires of you, that you're having to ask yourself, okay, wait a minute, is God God here? Is, do I think he is God? Because I, I, I can only bet that you can tell me any number of circumstances in which you are wondering what happens if I let God be God here. What might it cost me in my vocation? We all have those challenges. And I would love to hear yours. The way you know that it's not about you is that you take a look around at everything you do and everything you love and everything you aspire to and you're always asking yourself the question, is God God? Now, look, I, uh, it's wonderfully ironic that I'm saying this to you because I've had a pastor and an elder look me in the eye without looking away and said, Patrick, your God is whoever is in front of you. And what you think is humility in deferring to another and their concerns is really a form of pride that's really about protecting yourself and preserving your own reputation in their eyes. And that's deep. And that's thick. And I'd like to say, I've overcome all of that. I haven't. And maybe you struggle in other ways, or maybe you struggle in that way. But when it comes to a look around, it's very common for me to have to ask myself, is God God here? Or have I taken the, the proverbial metaphorical telescope, and I have looked at it at you through the telescope, and you are now actually bigger than what you really are? And, and then when it comes to the Lord, have I flipped around that telescope? And why am I looking up? Um, and I, I look through that, and now um, you are much smaller than you actually are. His grace is enough. Really? No, it isn't right now. That's deep. That's thick. I wish there was some sort of switch. Click. And now I'll look around, and clearly the Lord is Lord in everything that I do. Come on. Now, um, far be it for me to sort of cast a pail upon us going, wow, he struggles with it, I struggle with it. Um, that sounds kind of deep. What's the way out? Uh, look, I'm not going to tell you. If you'll just follow these four things, everything will be fine. The wonderful thing about this challenge is that we have a Lord who gets it. We read Philippians 2 as a New Testament passage for a reason. Because inserted in that passage was this line. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This divinity that was properly his, that was intrinsically his, that was eternally his, he didn't use that as an excuse to say, I will not, I will not deign to be in their presence. I will not bring myself to their level in order to provide and preserve and save them. He did. And so here's the wonderful paradox of it all. No one has ever been for you more than where he was at his cross, anticipated by this table. Not your mother who birthed you, not your grandparents who doted on you, not your mentor who stayed 
to teach you, not your, not your math teacher who stayed after class to make sure you could understand the quadratic equation. Not your dad who tried to teach you something that until you finally got it, no one has ever been more for you with all of those cloud of witnesses there, notwithstanding, no one has ever been more for you than how Christ was for you at his cross. And the irony of it is this, no one has ever been more for you. You were not simply an afterthought in his work. What he did for you was not simply a happy coincidence. He was never more for you. Why? So that he might liberate you from the oppression of your own self-fixation. He was never more for you so that you would know it's not about you. He would commend to you your glory by who you are, by virtue of you being made in his image. He would commend to you your glory by how he has come to love you at his cross so that you might just stop trying to make your glory on your own terms. This is the gospel. And you will spend your whole life and I will spend my whole life trying to believe it. But always with his help. And he will use many means Many faces, many experiences, many sufferings to commend to you that truth, but he will also use this table because it is here where we see Jesus perfectly demonstrating that he believed that what he was about would continue beyond his earthly sojourn. And here at this table, anticipating that cross, we see one who never displayed like anyone ever has or would a demonstration that he believed that God is God. And so he becomes for us an example. But if all he is to you is an example, you will be crushed under the weight of the expectation. So let me free you in all of this. You won't ever break free of the belief that it's not about you without his help. You will fail, you will fall, you will crumble, you will have someone hold up a mirror to you and you will see, my gosh, it's still there. And that, my friends, is a picture of grace. And so is this. It's why we come to it. It's why we need it. It is more than a ritual. Somehow in the middle of this, he's present. Somehow in receiving it, it's a grace. And, and not simply, do I, am I thinking about it perfectly, properly, or precisely? But because he is doing something on our behalf, just as he did at the moment that this moment pays homage to. It's not about you. And that's the best news you could hear today. It is about him. Take heart, brethren. Believe on him, those you do not believe yet. He is for you. Let's pray.